and good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Once again, for those of you who are new with us, we are working our way through the book of Ephesians here on Sunday morning at Calvary. And we recently finished a section in chapter 5 from verses 22 to 33, where Paul was dealing with the roles of husbands and wives. And we called that section God's Design for a Spirit-Filled Marriage. And now we are currently at a section in chapter 6 from verses 1 through 4, where Paul is dealing with the roles of children and parents, a section we're calling God's Design for a Spirit-Filled Family. Now, we're calling it these titles because both of these sections are built on Paul's imperative in verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Part of that means, of course, the power of God to live the life that He wants you to live. But also it includes the idea of control. Let the Holy Spirit control your life. He will control it in such a way as to make you more like Jesus and give you the strength and power to do all that God has for you to do. But the idea is, let the Spirit take control so that He will impact every area of your life, your marriage, and your family. In fact, I'll say this to you, when God is really in control of a family, well, that family has great peace. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is peace. To the degree to which you are allowing God to control your life and fill you with His Spirit, that will be the degree to which God's peace fills your family. You let God take a little control of your life, you'll have a little peace. You let God have all of you, and you surrender fully, God's peace will fill that house. God's peace will fill that marriage. So we've been looking at this, the first four verses of chapter 6, God's design for a spirit-filled family. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 3, God's command to children. And this morning we're going to look at verse 4, which is God's command to parents. But let me read all four verses once again. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Verse 4, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So God's command to parents is twofold. There is the negative command at the beginning part of verse 4, and then there is the positive command at the end of verse 4. This morning we're just going to look at that first one. Next week we'll finish up by looking at the end of verse 4 and God's positive command to parents. But right here, we start off with the negative. And Paul, God says in verse 4, the first part, He said, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Now, the Greek word there for fathers is pateras, and it is a Greek word usually used of the male parent in a family. However, not always. Sometimes the word is used to speak of parents in general. And since Paul has been speaking about both parents in verses 1 through 3, it seems reasonable to assume that he, is, he still has both parents in view in verse 4. However, in Paul's day, because the father was by far the most dominant parent in the household and the one most likely to provoke his children to wrath or anger, 
I think that Paul is directing his admonition here in verse 4 primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to the fathers. You know, when we read Paul's statement that fathers are not to provoke their children to wrath, it seems to us like a no-brainer, doesn't it? In other words, it seems like something that shouldn't need to even be said. It's so obvious that a loving father would not want to provoke his children to anger or do anything to frustrate them. It seems obvious to us, having lived with 2,000 years of Christianity, but it was not obvious in Paul's day. You see, in the pagan world of ancient Rome, what we call normal family love was almost non-existent back then, especially when it came to a father's love for his children. Author and historian William Barclay writes that under the Roman law of Patria Potesta, which literally means the father's power, listen to what he says, and I quote, a Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for the law was in his own hands. He could punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. Further, the power of the Roman father extended over the child's whole life, so long as the father lived. A Roman son, therefore, never came of age, end quote. And this power over his children, of course, began the moment they were born. In that culture back then, as soon as a child was born, it was taken and laid at the father's feet. If the father stooped down, picked up the child, it meant he was accepting the child and it would be raised as his. If he turned his back on the child, it meant he was rejecting the child and the child would be literally discarded. Often in the Colosseum, they would take these unwanted children, these infants, and lay them on the Colosseum dirt floor to die of exposure or starvation unless... You had those who trafficked in babies. They would always often come and take these children, the ones that seemed somewhat healthy. They would take these children and they would be raised to be slaves or to stock the brothels. One Roman father wrote to his wife. This is an actual letter now uh, from Paul's time. One Roman father wrote to his wife from Alexandria, Egypt, saying, and I quote, if good luck to you, you have a child. If it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, throw it out. Seneca, a renowned statesman in Rome at the time that Paul wrote this very letter to the Ephesians, he said, and I quote, We slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge a knife into a sick cow, children born weak or deformed, we drown. You know, it's hard for us Having grown up in a Christian culture, it's hard for us to imagine that kind of cold-hearted cruelty of a parent towards their children. And again, I think that it's because we don't realize how much the gospel has transformed mankind in the places where it has gone. I mean, if you study ancient literature of pagan cultures, you'd be shocked and horrified at some of the things that went on. And I'll tell you this, as our country has moved into a post-Christian era, now some may argue with me on that, and that's fine. I'm not saying we don't have churches most of the time in every corner. I'm not saying people don't go to church. I'm just saying for the most part, even those who profess to be Christians do not really have a biblical worldview anymore. They don't really understand what Christianity really is all about. It's not about me. It's not about God 
uh, blessed in my life constantly and incessantly. It's not about, you know, what God's going to do for me. It's about taking up my cross, dying to self, and following after Jesus to glorify God through my life. You don't have many people who profess to be Christians that have that kind of mindset. So even in the church, you have a lot of worldliness and carnality. And as we have moved into a post-Christian era, it has led to a resurgence in our culture of the same kind of selfishness and decadence and disregard for human life that characterized those pagan cultures before the gospel transformed them. According to one recent report, listen, it said, and I quote, the primary cause for children being in foster homes today is not divorce, financial destitution, or the death of the parents, but simply the disinterest of their parents, end quote. So people are giving up their children because they're not interested in really being parents. In fact, this disinterest has led to a couple of dominant views in the way that many look upon children today. The first is those who are anti-child. As I've mentioned in a previous study, one-third of all married couples who are of childbearing age have been sterilized. They don't want kids. They don't want kids. Kids are an imposition on the life that they want to live, on their careers, on the things they want to own, you know, places they want to go. You, kids just weigh you down. And a lot of young couples are opting not to have kids at all. They're being sterilized. One survey done in America showed that 70% of the parents surveyed, listen, 70% said they would not have children if they had it to do all over again. When I first became a Christian, there was an organization in America called NON. It's an acronym, N-O-N. It stood for the National Organization of Non-Parents. It was formed in 1972. It disbanded in the early 80s. But their motto was kind of like, what they said was this. They didn't want to foul up their lives with kids. You know, this was real popular, this notion, back in the late 70s, early 80s. Okay, probably in the 60s, too. Um, but maybe you saw, you know, have you ever seen the little diamond-shaped yellow uh, stick-on sign that people would stick on their rear view, of their uh, back windows of their cars that says, you know, baby on board? Have you ever seen the one that says, no baby on board? I've seen those. I don't see them as much today as I used to. But it signified, look, we don't have kids and we want it that way. We're childless by choice. Now, of course, this group is gone, but others have replaced uh, them. Uh, if not, the philosophy is still very much alive today. But, you know, even as bad as it has gotten in this country where... So many people have come to see children as a burden and not as a blessing, so much so that they're opting not to have kids at all. I still respect those people more than the second group that we're going to talk about. The first group is anti-child. The second group has children, but they are either too lazy or selfish to give their children the time, the love, the guidance, and the loving discipline they need to grow into well-adjusted, responsible adults. You know, it's interesting how many secular organizations that deal with children are realizing today the importance of proper discipline in the home. Now, this is not the way it's always been. In fact, uh, 20 to 25 years ago, there was um, a, a real push in our culture where we were being told by uh, the professionals, quote-unquote, you know, um, 
secular professionals tend to view all of us uh, when we're born as being a white slate, clean slate, inherently good. And what messes us up is our environment and our parents. So if parents could just leave your kids alone, stop messing with them, stop disciplining them, let them grow into the, into the people that they were you know, designed to be, let them reach their authentic personhood, I guess is the phrase. Stop getting in there and trying to indoctrinate them and all your stuff and way of thinking and just let them develop in a very free and open way to be what they're going to be. Well, that experiment, folks, didn't work so well. You know, anytime man thinks he can improve on what God has said, guess what? Man's wrong. And so the problem was you had all these kids growing up in homes where they weren't getting any discipline. Parents were not really telling them no, because after all, who's to say my truth is their truth? I need to let them kind of grow and develop and make their own choices about what they believe about things. But that led to a real disaster, didn't it? We had a whole generation of kids who grew up rebellious, out of control. Now even these secular organizations are realizing the importance of loving discipline in the home. You know, I was telling first service, we had a woman in the church here years ago, and she was a Christian, but her sister was not. Her sister was in her early 40s, and she was not married. I don't think she had ever been married. And she decided that she was going to adopt a, a, a little boy and that she was going to raise that child with total freedom. No discipline, no rules, you know, no doubt reacting in part to her sister's Christianity, so restrictive and so on. Just going to adopt this child and I'm going to just show how everyone how it's really done, you know. Well, the sister was telling me, the woman who came to our church, this kid was about six at the time. I don't know, that's like been 20 years ago or so. I don't know, I, I can't help but think the kid's in the penitentiary somewhere now. But this kid was absolutely out of control. He was a terrorist. I mean, he would swear at her, he would hit her, punch her, kick her. He would break things. He, would, he would, wouldn't sit and eat a meal. He was up and down over the... He was just bouncing off the walls and he was completely out of control. But see, this was her concept. You know, we're just going to, you know, children are inherently good and, and it's us parents that mess them up. We need to kind of, you know, let them just grow and develop, you know, just as they're going to do it. A few years ago, the Houston Police Department. Now, these are the folks at the front line, right? These are not some ivory towered uh, psychologists or so-called expert. These are the people in the front. These are the folks that are cleaning up the mess from all the people who adopted that kind of mentality, Right. Listen to what they said. This came out a few years ago. The Houston Police Department came up with what they called at that time 12 rules for raising delinquent children. Here they are. Begin with infancy to give the child everything he wants. In this way, he will grow up to believe the world owes him a living. When he picks up bad words, laugh at him. This will make him think he's cute. Never give him any spiritual training. Wait until he's 21 and let him decide for himself. Avoid the use of the word wrong. It may develop a guilt complex. This will condition him to believe later when he is arrested for stealing a car that society is against him and he is being persecuted. Pick up everything he leaves lying around. Do everything for him so that he will be experienced in throwing all his responsibilities onto others. Let him read any printed materials he can get his hands on. Be careful that the silverware and drinking glasses are sterilized, but let his mind feast on garbage. And that would include today 
with some parents are letting their kids watch on cable and some of these demonic and excessively violent video games that some parents think are okay. Number seven, quarrel frequently in the presence of your children. In this way, they won't be so shocked when the home is broken up later. Give a child all the spending money he wants. Never let him earn his own. Satisfy his every craving for food, drink, and comfort. See that every sensual desire is gratified. Take his part against neighbors, teachers, and policemen. They are all prejudiced against your child. When he gets into real trouble, apologize for yourself by saying, Never could do anything with them. And number 12, prepare for a life of grief. You are likely to have it. You know, one of my favorite people out of the Old Testament is David. I just love David. I love his heart for the Lord. I love his adventurous spirit, you know. I love his just willingness to just, you know, do anything for God and go anywhere and so on and so forth. David was a great king, but he was not such a great father when it came to disciplining his children, and as such, his family really paid the price. You remember how David's one son, Absalom, tried to actually overthrow his father and was killed by David's general, Joab. Later on, Absalom's brother, Adonijah, also tried to usurp his father's authority, his father's kingdom, as David was an old man now and it his time on the throne was growing to a close. Adonijah decided he was going to throw himself a little coronation party and appoint himself as the new king. Well, David eventually appointed Solomon, and Solomon gave Adonijah a second chance, which he blew, and Solomon finally had his half-brother killed. But one of the things we read in 1 Kings 1, verse 6, about what was going on with Adonijah, it says, And his father David had not rebuked him at any time, saying, Why have you done so? David never corrected this kid. Why? I have no idea. Maybe he was too busy running the kingdom, or maybe David felt that was being a good father. You know? I, I don't know what motivates some parents to do what they do with regard to raising their children. I don't know. I know that. I believe that they, they, they really don't have... Uh, evil in mind. I, I'm, I'm convinced a lot of them are doing what they think is right. The problem is that when they're Christians, well, you need to really raise your kids according to what God has said. Why would we want to deviate from the instruction manual God has given us with regard to marriage and family when God is the one who made us? God is the one who knows how we work. And when God tells us, look, if you'll do this, it's going to be good for your family. And we don't do it. I don't understand the logic there. So that's the one end of the spectrum. You've got the lazy and lax parents who, you know, can't be bothered or out of some misguided philosophy of child rearing, uh, they, it's all hands-off stuff, you know. The kids are on autopilot. They're growing up completely without the parents, you know, input and so on. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, from the lazy and lax parent, you have the domineering and demanding parent whose standards are impossible to measure up to. See, this is the opposite of that lax parent. This is the parent that is overbearing. You know, someone who is always on the child's back, telling them what to do, when to do it, and when they do do it, telling them how they did it wrongly or how they could have done it better. In other words, constant nagging. Folks, constant nagging will suck the life out of anybody. 
I don't care if you're a husband, a wife, or a child. I was telling first service, you know, I read a lot of articles. Some of them I keep. This one I kept. It was a story, uh, it just happened a few days ago, uh, of a, um, I think it was somewhere like in Taiwan area, there was a, a river out there, and uh, this, um, this uh, I don't know if it was a, a, some kind of a ship that carried passengers and, and all. They were, they were sailing down this river. I don't know if it was like a cruise or what was going on, but, but they were sailing down this river, and the captain was on deck, when all of a sudden, one of the passengers came running up from below where the cabins were with his fingers in his ears screaming, I can't take it anymore, and he jumps overboard. The captain thought something was going on in his head because he, so he was in some kind of pain when all of a sudden, here comes the wife running up the stairs, still nagging the guy. Well, they thought the guy was dead because it was a fast-moving river, but he lived. And when they hauled this poor guy back onto the boat, when his wife realized that her nagging had pushed this guy to jump overboard, she promised she was going to back off a little bit. And I thought, my goodness. I mean, come on. I mean, that kind of thing provokes your kids to anger and frustration. And it also does what Paul said in Colossians 3.21 in the parallel passage he said, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Anger, frustration, and discouragement come when parents are always on their kids. You know, Pastor John MacArthur, in his commentary on this section in Ephesians, had this to say about what it means to provoke our children. Let me read this to you, I quote. To provoke children to anger suggests a repeated ongoing pattern of treatment that gradually builds up a deep-seated anger and resentment that boils over an outward hostility. Such treatment is usually not intended to provoke the child to anger. Often it is thought to be for the child's good. Well-meaning overprotection is a common cause of resentment in children. Parents who smother their children overly restrict where they can go and what they can do and never trust them to do things on their own and continually question their judgment, build a barrier between themselves and their children, usually under the delusion that they are building a closer relationship. Children need careful guidance and certain restrictions, but they are individual human beings in their own right and must learn to make decisions on their own, commensurate with their age and maturity. Their will can be and should be guided, but it cannot be controlled, end quote. Now, from that point, MacArthur goes on to list seven other ways parents can provoke their children to anger, frustration, and discouragement. And I thought these were very insightful, so I'd like to share them with you. The first thing you can do to provoke your kids to frustration and anger is through favoritism. Favoritism. You know, we see this uh, in the scriptures, especially in the family of Isaac and Rebekah. They had uh, twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And you remember the story, don't you? How that Isaac favored Esau. Why? Because Esau was a man's man. He was a hunter, you know, would go out and catch him stuff in the field and bring it back and make a big barbecue. And, you know, the guys like that kind of thing, you know. Jacob was more of a mama's boy. He liked to hang out with his mom in the kitchen and bake and stuff like that. And so... Rebecca favored Jacob, and, he, and Isaac favored uh, Esau. Well, that brought a lot of tension into the family, didn't it? It was not a good situation for both of those boys who grew up 
and were never close. Um, there was problems there. You know, I know this kind of thing firsthand in my own family. Uh, my dad experienced this with his parents. Now, my grandparents were uh, very sweet people, but for some odd reason, they made no bones about the fact that they favored some and not my dad. My dad had a brother and sister. Now, he was the oldest, but uh, for some reason, they uh, kind of went out of their way to show him that he really wasn't the favored child. Uh, there were a lot of stories about this that he uh, mentioned to me over the years. Uh, the one that really sticks in my mind that I still to this day have a hard time believing is true, which I know it is, was one day when he was about maybe 10, 11, he came home from school and found a note on the kitchen table that said, uh, go stay with your uncle, we've gone on vacation. Now, my father didn't grow up bitter and angry, but he did grow up with a lot of hurt. And I think to yourself, why is that? Why do parents do things like that? MacArthur, on this subject, said, For parents to compare their children with each other, especially in the children's presence, can be devastating to the child who is less talented or favored. He will tend to become discouraged, resentful, withdrawn, and bitter if favoritism is allowed to continue. You know, years ago, uh, when the kids were little, I remember one day, nice day, we went over to the zoo. And uh, they had a nice day at the zoo. And we were sitting out. They had an area where you could eat a sack lunch. And we had brought some stuff. And they had some picnic tables. So we were sitting there eating with the kids. They were little. And I noticed another young couple. They had a boy of about six and then a newborn in a stroller. And, you know, being a pastor, you observe things, right? You know, we're people watchers. And I noticed how the father, young man, maybe 22, and I noticed right away that the father doted on the kid in the stroller, but went out of his way to put down and to yell at the six-year-old. That seemed odd to me at the time, but I feel like the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, the reason for this is that little boy is not his son. That was from his wife's first marriage. And so I found myself praying for that little guy because you should have saw the look on his face. I mean, he, just, he knew that he was not loved by his stepfather. It was a terrible thing to have to look at. I mean, his little spirit was just crushed. You could see it all over his face. It was obvious because this child was not really his own, he did not have enough depth of character to love this kid as his own, but rejected this child because he was not blood. I mean, this kind of thing goes on. I don't know how much, but I know it goes on, but it should never be. It should never be. The next one involved in provoking our children to anger and wrath and frustration and so on is pushing achievement beyond reasonable bounds. Pushing achievement beyond reasonable bounds. MacArthur said, and I quote, a child can be so pressured to achieve that he is virtually destroyed. He quickly learns that nothing he does is sufficient to please his parents. No sooner does he accomplish one goal than he is challenged to accomplish something better. Fathers who fantasize their own achievements through the athletic skills of their sons or mothers who fantasize a glamorous career through the lives of their daughters prostitute their responsibility as parents. He said, I once visited a young woman who was confined to a padded cell and was in a state, a state of catatonic shock. 
She was a Christian and had been raised in a Christian family, but her mother had ceaselessly pushed her to be the most popular, the most beautiful, and the most successful girl in school. She became head cheerleader, homecoming queen, and later a model. But the pressure to excel became too great, and she had a complete mental collapse. After she was eventually released from the hospital, she went back into the same artificial and demanding environment. When again she found she could not cope, she committed suicide. She had summed up her frustration when she told me one day, I don't care what it is I do, it never satisfies my mother. Now, I'm sure that mom didn't have any ill will towards her daughter. I'm sure she wasn't trying to hurt her. But sometimes we think we're doing our children a favor by pushing, pushing, pushing for them to be the best. It's a competitive world. I got to teach them how to fight, how to excel. And you think you're helping your kids, but you're pushing them beyond their limits. And it creates a lot of problems. The third way that we can provoke our children to anger, frustration, and so on is through discouragement. MacArthur said, a child who is never complimented or encouraged by his parents is destined for trouble. If he is always told what is wrong with him and never what is right, he will soon lose hope and become convinced that he is incapable of doing anything right. At that point, he has no reason even to try. Parents can always find something that a child genuinely does well, and they should show appreciation for it. A child needs approval and encouragement in things that are good every bit as much as he needs correction in things that are not. Well, the next way to provoke your kids to frustration and so on is a failure to sacrifice for the children and making them feel unwanted. MacArthur says children who are made to feel that they are an intrusion that they are always in the way and interfere with the plans and happiness of the parents, cannot help becoming resentful. To such children, the parents themselves will eventually become unwanted and an intrusion on the children's plans and happiness, end quote. I was watching a program a few years ago. Uh, it was a program, actually, that was dealing with how uh, certain parents had abandoned their families and their kids primarily. It, it consisted of both fathers and mothers who had done this. And so the program was designed to kind of seek out the parent that had abandoned the, the, the family to find out what was the motivation for what they did. And I'll never forget, there's about five different uh, families that they, they focused on. But one of these families in particular, and the camera was along this whole deal, uh, you know, filming this thing, uh, it was about a, a guy by this time who was about 21, 22. His dad had abandoned uh, him and his brothers and sisters years ago, uh, I guess because he wanted uh, to spread his wings and fly, you might say. You know, the kids were holding him down, cramping his style. And so he abandoned the kids when they were little. And now this kid is 20, uh, in his early 20s, uh, wanted to find his dad because he had a lot of uh, pent-up hurt and resentment, he wanted to at least ask his father, well, why did you do this, Dad? So he, he locates his father, and of course, we're along for the ride, and we get to the house, pulls up to the house. Here's the guy has got a Corvette in his driveway. This son knocks on the front door, introduces himself, and the father at first was mildly pleasant, but aloof. And the son asked him, Dad, I just want to know, why did you do that? That really hurt us. 
why did you do that to us? And the father, I don't remember the whole conversation, but I remember how it ended. He said, I don't care if I ever see you again. Why would you do it? Because I wanted to do it. And you know what? I don't care if I ever see you again. All as I remember is this young man walking back to the car that his friend had driven him in. I mean, I couldn't even take a breath. I was so floored at the cold-heartedness of this father. You'd have to have seen this to understand the hurt on this young guy's face. I mean, it was, I think that if his dad would have taken a baseball bat out and hit him upside his head, it would have been an easier blow to take than what his father said to him. This kid walked down these stairs with a look on his face I'll never forget. He just got in the car, and he just breaks down and starts weeping. Because now he had all those years of anger and frustration that his father abandoned him, but instead of a healing opportunity, his dad magnified it a hundred times over. How do you explain something like that? I, I really can't, except the Bible says in the last days, people would be without natural affection. The Greek term there means without family love. Without family love. The fifth thing that will cause us to provoke our children to anger and frustration is failing to let the children grow up at a normal pace. MacArthur says, chiding them for always acting childish, even when what they do is perfectly normal and harmless, does not contribute to their maturity, but rather helps confirm them in their childishness. These are the, the kind of parents that, for whatever reason, don't let their kids be kids. This takes all different kinds of forms. The one that comes to my mind, though, uh, comes from a, um, a new show. I think it's on the Discovery Channel. A show that I've never seen, a show that I never will watch. Maybe you've, I've seen the commercials for it. It's about these parents, primarily as moms, who take their little girls, maybe five, four or five years old, and they dress them up in these real adult-looking, almost make them look like Las Vegas showgirls. They wear all this makeup, got their hair done like they're, you know, in their 30s, you know, and they're strutting around on stage. Little girls about five or six, sometimes striking these provocative, sensual poses like they're little sex kittens at six years old. And I, I saw a commercial for one of these, and before this competition, I see this family gathered around praying with each other that God would bless the competition. I'm thinking, could you be any more clueless than you are? That little girl, those little girls should be playing with dolls, not parading themselves around on stage for every pedophile in the world to look at and lust after. What, I don't know what goes through people's minds today. People are not only without natural affection, they are void of any kind of common sense, I think, too. Well, number six, another way that you can provoke your kids to anger and frustration and, and discouragement is using love as a reward for doing good and withholding it as a punishment for doing bad. MacArthur said, often the practice is unconscious. But a child can sense if a parent cares for him less when he is disobedient than when he behaves. Now, I was telling first service, and I've told this story before, but I know a lot of folks are new to our church. I haven't told this in a few years. But when my kids were small, my boys, okay, I've got two boys and my daughter's the youngest. I don't think she was born at this time. 
I know that my oldest, uh, Phil, was about maybe six around this time, and Bobby was four. And um, every night after dinner, especially in the summertime, as Cindy would be cleaning up the kitchen, it was my job to take the kids into the bathroom and give them baths. And we're in there, we're washing up, you know, and all, and having a good time. And so afterwards, you know, I'd, I'd take them out, you know, i start drying them off, you know. And, you know, how you, Dad, you say things, and, you know, you don't mean anything by it. But, but you know, they smelled so great, you know. And I came out one day with the statement, oh, I love clean boys. Now, my oldest son, Phil, came back and said, well, Dad, do you love dirty boys, too? Now, I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box. <laughs> but I feel like the Holy Spirit tapped on my shoulder and said to me, be very careful how you answer this question. It has implications that go far beyond this moment. I stopped and thought for a second, and I said to him, yes, son, I love dirty boys, but clean boys smell better. <laughs> you know, I didn't want him growing up thinking that God, as his heavenly father, only loved him when he was clean or when he was doing what was right. I wanted him to know that his heavenly father, who loved him much more than I ever could, loved him even when he had sinned as much as when he was good. God loves all of us, whether we're clean or dirty. I think the clean children just smell a little better. Doesn't affect his love for us, though. But we have to understand that as God loves us unconditionally, we have to love our kids that way. MacArthur goes on to say, you know, God doesn't love us that way, you know, conditionally. That's not how God loves and is not the way he intends human parents to love. God disciplines his children just as much out of love as he blesses them out of love. Hebrews 12, 6 says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Because it is so easy to punish out of anger and resentment, parents should take special care to let their children know they love them when discipline is given. End quote. So when you, you must discipline your kids, but when you do, make sure they realize it's not punitive. You love them. And you don't want them to continue on in behavior that is rebellious and destructive. And I'll give you one more. And this is the one that probably comes to mind first. We can provoke our kids to anger and frustration and discouragement through physical and or verbal abuse. MacArthur said, and I quote, battered children are a growing tragedy today. Even Christian parents, fathers especially, sometimes overreact and spank their children much harder than necessary. Proper physical discipline is not a matter of exerting superior authority and strength, but of correcting in love and reasonableness. Children are also abused verbally. A parent can, can as easily overpower a child with words as with physical force. Putting him down with superior arguments or sarcasm can inflict serious harm and provoke him to anger and resentment. It is amazing that we sometimes say things to our children that we would not think of saying to anyone else for fear of ruining our reputation." End quote. You know, my kids are officially grown. My daughter, my youngest, has just entered college where she is now living on campus. She'll be 21 this November. So my children are officially grown up. And as I look back on 
the years that they were little. And the things that I did as a father, uh, there are many times I would love to go back and do some things differently. You know, when you're younger, you make mistakes based on your inexperience as a parent. Uh, also on the fact that as a young father, especially, I think, you feel the, uh, the weight and responsibility of providing for your family, which adds a lot of frustration and pressure, which you sometimes bring home and take out on the kids and maybe even your wife. And I would love to go back um, and, and be able to do some things differently. I came across this, and I'll close with this. It's a Christian father who felt the same way and actually verbalized this. He wrote some things down. Let me read it to you. This Christian father said, and I quote, My family's all grown up and the kids are all gone. But if I had to do it all over again, this is what I would do. I would love my wife more in front of my children. I would laugh with my children more at our mistakes and our joys. I would listen more, even to the littlest child. I would be more honest about my own weaknesses, never pretending perfection. I would pray differently for my family. Instead of focusing on them, I'd focus on me. I would do more things together with my children. I would encourage them more and bestow more praise. I would pay more attention to little things like deeds and words of thoughtfulness. And then finally, if I had it to do all over again, I would share God more intimately with my family. Every ordinary thing that happened in every ordinary day, I would use to direct them to God, end quote. Hey, that's just a man being honest. That's just a godly father saying, I wish I could go back and do some things differently. I would be a better parent today. That's why, by the way, we're often better grandparents than we are, than we were parents. Because you grow as a person, and um, you learn how to be a better parent. Well, some of you still have young kids. So you don't have to have regrets. Make some changes. Learn from the mistakes of some of the older guys. Don't come to at a point in your life when you're 45 or 50 looking back and going, boy, I wish I would have done things differently. It's a wise man or woman that learns from the mistakes of others that they are better persons for the mistakes that others have learned from and passed on to them. So I'm just passing on to you some things that I think might help you to be a better father or better mother. Now next week, of course, we will end this section that we've entitled uh, God's Command to Parents by looking at the positive commands or injunctions that God has given us in verse 4, uh, things that He wants us to do uh, as we raise our kids. So we'll see that next time. Father, we thank You so much, Lord, for Your goodness and grace in all of our lives. You are the perfect parent. Father, we as earthly parents, well, we make a lot of mistakes. I know I have. And Father, I know that there's a lot of people in this room, maybe that their parents were less than perfect. And so they have grown up with some resentments and some anger and, and, and bitterness issues towards their parents. Father, help us all to realize that our parents are just kids that grew up and had kids. You're the perfect parent. And I have prayed many times to you, Father, 
to be a father to my children in areas that maybe I had failed in, to make up in their character for the things that I wasn't diligent about training into them. Lord, we thank you that you are the perfect parent. Help us to realize, Lord, that no matter how much our parents failed, you'll never fail us. And forgive those, Lord, who have brought into their adult life and especially their Christianity baggage, maybe from their earthly father who abused them. And now they're having a hard time relating to their heavenly father. But Lord, touch their hearts, cause them to realize you will never hurt them. You will never abuse them. You will never leave them nor forsake them. And I just pray, Lord, for all the hurt adult kids here today that you would just heal their hearts towards their parents. They have a new father in heaven, the perfect parent. And we need to now look to you, Lord, because we're your children. I don't care how old we are, we're still growing. And we want you, Lord, to teach us to be the kind of kids that honor you. We know that you're going to love us no matter what. If we fail or succeed, you're still going to love us. You love dirty boys and girls. But when we walk in the Spirit, we bring honor to you. And that's the goal. We thank you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.